Hi, and welcome to the GC Podcast. So we've just played Shakespeare or scripture there where we looked at 10 different um, quotes and we were trying to figure out whether that was a quote from Shakespeare and a quote from scripture. And as you can see, it was very difficult to tell the difference sometimes. Um, And our final quote that we looked at was from Philippians 2 verse 4. 15. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And this is going to be the scripture that we look at today. So um, if you've got your Bibles with you or you've got a Bible app, then uh, I do suggest you get that open. It's really good to have the Bible open in front of us. And we're going to jump around a little bit as well. So um, it's good to be ready to to get into the word and um, and have a look at different parts of it. Now, in uh, Philippians, um, what we're seeing is a letter from Paul to the church in Philippi. um, And he wrote the letter from prison. Um, I read Philippians last year. It came out of a a prayer time. I felt prompted to read it. And as I read through it, um, I felt this was a message for us as a church. Um, the, The book was written while Paul was in prison and he was writing to his friends, really, in the church in Philippi. Um, it's the letter is sort of unique compared to other letters that he wrote because when he writes his other letters like uh, Galatians and Colossians, um, he's often writing as a response to some sort of crisis. Um, he's writing to guide them. But this letter is kind of more of an encouragement, really. He's just urging his friends to kind of keep going, keep the faith. Um, he misses them. He's very fond of them. He's got a lot of affection for them. And that uh, comes across. Um, and so as I read the book last year uh, at the Book of Philippians, I felt three things really stood out to me. Um, uh, and I felt these uh, were things that God was giving to me um, and they were going to be key in setting our foundations for G2 as we gathered for the, you know, after COVID for the first time last year. Um, it, it felt a bit like we were in Nehemiah and we were rebuilding the walls and um, uh, our we needed to make sure our foundations were firm and there were three things that God gave to me and they were hold firm to the word, receive a fresh supply of the spirit and be filled with love. And so these things have now become our culture. This is how we do things. Last week, we looked at our vision. um, And then this week and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at our culture. We're going to be looking at these three things. And today we're doing hold firm to the word. And why why is it that we want to hold firm to the world? Well, the world gives us lots of messages, messages about our identity, messages about our work ethic, our relationships, our families, our friends. There's all sorts of messages being given to us and it can leave us spinning while we try to figure out what is true and what is right. And I believe the answer to all of these questions are found in here, in the Bible, in the word of life. So let's have a look at the full scripture in Philippians. It's Philippians 2 and it's starting at verse 14. Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. 
Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, the language that Paul uses here is far more like Shakespeare than his usual kind of straight up style. Usually when he writes, it's kind of very much like say it how it is. Um, if you scan through other parts of Philippians or if you've read other letters from Paul, then you can see this really stands out as quite a poetic part of the letter. And the reason for this is Paul is referencing or quoting Old Testament scripture. He's kind of like hidden it or embedded headed it into what he's writing here. And the people reading the letter, they would have spotted these references, they would have known their scripture. And I wonder um, if we can spot them too. And so the first scripture that he references is simply the reference to grumbling and arguing. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And this is referring to the Israelites in Exodus 16 and 17. So if we uh, look, if you want to get that open in front of you um, and, and have a look for it, um, then what we see, what's going on here is um, it's the story of Moses um, leading the Israelites out of Egypt um, and uh, they were supposed to go to the promised land. They um, then end up having to wait 40 years to get into the promised land. Um, but this part of the story, they are uh, about 45 days into uh, their journey. So it's quite, it's quite near the start. So it's, it's been about a month and a half since they left Egypt. But that initial excitement had already worn off. Um, the food had run out and they were beginning to question Moses's plan. So they started complaining to Moses. Actually, um, they were they were going as far as to say that they wish they'd been left in Egypt. They would rather be slaves in Egypt or even rather be left to die in Egypt than to be here in the wilderness. Um, if you have a look at Exodus 16 and just um, scan through it, then you will see how many times that word grumble appears. You don't need to read it, but just scan and see um, if you can see all the different places that grumble appears. And, and this is the part of the story. So they're grumbling and complaining. And then what God does is he provides manna for them. So his response to their complaining is provision. Um, they're complaining because they're hungry and they haven't got any food, but God provides manna. And every day, six days a week, when they wake up, there is this heavenly bread on the, on the ground. Um, and then on the sixth day, there is enough for two days so they can collect enough for the Sabbath as well. So you would think now that they would be happy, they'd be satisfied and they would remember that they can trust God. However, if we look at chapter 17, then very shortly after this, they're back to complaining and this time arguing. They're arguing, they're quarrelling. You can see that the word quarrel appears a few times here and this time it's because they're thirsty. So let's, they were hungry, they complained, they whinged at Moses about it and God uh, was very, you know, very gracious and he provided manna for them. And very quickly they forget this and they go back to quarrelling with Moses and demanding, give us some water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But 
the people were thirsty for water and so they grumbled and quarreled. And so once again, we see God provides. He tells Moses to strike a rock with his staff and water will come out of it. And there is a miraculous provision of water. God is reminding his people that he is with them, despite the fact that they're grumbling and arguing. He then ends up calling that place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarrelling, because the Israelites quarrelled and because they tested the Lord there. That's how much of a nightmare that they were being, that that place is now named after their quarrelling and testing. So when Paul writes, do everything without grumbling or arguing, he is reminding them of the grumbling and arguing that happened before, that happened with the Israelites. Then Paul says, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped, warped and crooked generation. Now, this is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 32. So if you want to skip in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 32, you'll see here that this is the song of Moses. And at this point, Moses was about 120 years old. He knew that he wasn't ever going to see the promised land. He um, had already handed the baton on to Joshua. And these are pretty much his parting words, his final goodbye before he dies. And the Israelites at this point had become more rebellious against God and Moses sorry, against God. And Moses actually said to them that if they are this rebellious while he's alive, how much worse will they get after um, he dies? And so despite that provision of manna and water that they'd had 40 years earlier, despite um, all the provision uh, that they'd seen over the, the last 40 years, they were still fighting, they were still complaining, and they're still not trusting God. And so in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, Moses sings these words. Do not worry, I am not going to sing them, um, but I will just say them. He sings them about the Israelite people. They are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are warped. They are a warped and crooked generation. In this Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator who made you and formed you? So when Paul in his letter to the Philippians says um, that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, he is once again referring to the Israelites. He's reminding his dear friends in Philippi of the story of God's people, their you know, their story. I don't think Paul is actually um, saying there's there's nothing to suggest that the people in Philippians were arguing and grumbling too much, but he's just reminding them not to. He's encouraging them not to go down that route and just to stay, uh, stay strong and stay with their eyes fixed on Jesus. Paul then says, um, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. And this is far too poetic to not be a reference, isn't it? This is from the book of Daniel. And m- most of us are probably familiar with the book of Daniel. He was an advisor to the king. Um, he served the king by interpreting his dreams. It became mo- one of the most trusted advisors. The king then died. There was a new king who expected everyone to bow down to him and not worship any other god. Daniel refused and he got thrown into the lion's den. He spent the night there and he survived totally unharmed. He was protected by God. The king then believed in Yahweh, our God, and he told everyone that they had to do so as well. And Daniel returned as a trusted advisor and prophet. 
And uh, what is interesting is the book of Daniel is both a story and a prophecy. At times, it's so accurate that some people think it must have been written after events had happened because they, he couldn't possibly be written before. It's so accurate. And right at the end of this book of Daniel, he is prophesying about the end times when everyone written in God's book will be saved. And he says these words. Can you see how Paul, um, sorry, he says these words, shine among them like stars in the sky. Can you see how Paul then uses these words when he says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Paul is reminding us that the story is not over. He's reminding the Philippians, he's reminding us the story is not over. The Israelites struggled, they grumbled, they argued and they lost so much, but there is so much more to come. There is so much to be hopeful for and we too can shine like the brightness of the heavens, like the stars. So let's look again at the full scripture in Philippians 2. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. As you hold firmly to the word of life, look at how beautiful that is. That is amazing rhetoric because Paul is encouraging the church to hold firmly to the word of life, which is scripture. He's hold firmly to scripture by using scripture. He's embedding scripture into that message. But it is not Paul's rhetoric that we are inspired by. It is his love for an understanding of scripture. It is the way he embeds scripture into this encouragement that shows how deeply it is embedded into his heart. When I was a teenager, I had um, a little book of quotes which I would read to inspire me to live better. Um, I actually couldn't find my book. I know it's in my attic somewhere, but it was a, it was a little bit like um, this one that I've got here. And um, I would open my this book, and I would uh, and I would find something, and um, uh, like this one: a smile is a curve that sets everything straight. And I would decide this is going to be my mantra for the day. This is I'm going to live by this today, and I'd get ready for school, and I'd go off to school thinking, yep. Yeah, this is my mantra, a smile is a curve that sets everything straight. And then on another day, I'd open it and read something else like this one. A table, a chair, a bowl of fruit and a violin. What else does a man need to be happy? And I'd get my bag and I'd go off to school thinking, yep, yeah, I've got my mantra for the day. What else does a man need to be happy? Never played violin in my life. And I'm not entirely sure what that quote means, but that's Albert Einstein. Or this one, don't save things for a special occasion. Every day of your life is a special occasion. Yeah, that's my mantra for the day. I'm going to live like everything is a special occasion. And off I'd go uh, to, to school like that. And then when I first became a Christian, when I was 
19. Um, I was at university um, and, I, and I met Jesus. Um, and to be honest, for several years after this, I kind of used the Bible in the same way. I sort of dipped into it looking for a line or a quote, something inspirational that could be my mantra, something that would inspire me for the day. And I'm not saying that's wrong at all. The Bible speaks to us and encourages us in all sorts of ways. But I no longer want to use the Bible as my little book of quotes. I want that depth and understanding that Paul had. I want to know the um, more breadth and more depth of the Bible. And if you've got a Bible app, then it's most likely you've got a U version one. That's um, that's the most popular one. And I had a little look to see what are the most saved scriptures in U version, just out of interest. What are the uh, the most saved? And then had a look. And there's a there's a couple that really caught my eye and that I wanted to have a look at. Um, the first one is Philippians 4 verse 6 and uh, it says and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus and that's brilliant isn't it the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus but what and this has been saved by lots of people it's obviously important to them but the bit that comes before this says in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God and it struck me that um that people save this because we want the peace of God to protect our hearts and minds and that's the bit we focus on that's the bit we want that's the bit that's going to bless us but maybe we don't want to do the discipline of prayer and petition we'd rather skip to the end and get the peace of God but when Paul writes this when he wrote this he was in prison unsure of whether he would die there and he's writing to his friends urging them to continue to pray and petition continue to give thanks to God continue to talk to him and that is how we get the peace of God but by focusing in on that one hopeful line in this chapter we miss the bigger story of our part in this that it is it is part of our discipleship to pray and petition And through that, through that relationship with God, we will get the peace of God. Another uh, most saved scripture that stood out to me is Jeremiah 29 verse 11. And I know this is a really popular one. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, this was written as an encouragement from Jeremiah to the Israelites. Um, So, of course, we can read it as an encouragement. That is what um, it was meant for. The Israelites at the time were being held captive in Babylon. um, uh, And the wider context is that just before this verse, just before this very, very encouraging verse, Jeremiah tells them it's going to be another 70 years that they're going to be in captivity. So the message that he's actually giving them is that they they need to settle in. They need to make it their home. This is going to be a long time. And often we read this encouragement um, as a kind of don't worry, everything's going to be okay." when actually it's much more of a dig deep, guys. This is going to be a long journey and you need to be prepared and equipped for it. It isn't really a nice, happy message. It's actually a message we need to hear 
because we need to know that we don't always get a quick fix and we're not always just pulled out of the place we're in. But by only focusing on that one hopeful line from this chapter, we miss the bigger story of building resilience and keeping the faith. Like I said, there isn't a wrong way to read scripture. In fact, there are lots of different ways to read and engage in it. But ultimately, I think we want depth that will keep us steadfast throughout our lives. The word of God is alive today. And in Hebrews, it says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I love that. The word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. And as we submit ourselves to the word of God, we do it for far, far more than intellectual knowledge, or to learn Bible facts. We do it for the ministry of the word because God meets us in his word and the Holy Spirit works powerfully through the word of God. This spiritual work of God's word goes far beyond the basic educational value of learning the Bible. It transforms us. It's not a little book of quotes designed to lift us up or to guide us. There's going to be stuff in here that we don't like. There's going to be things that don't fit the worldview that we've been told to believe or that we have chosen to believe. There's going to be things that challenge us. There's even going to be things that offend us. There's going to be things that we read and it will convict us. And there's going to be stuff we have to wrestle with. And of course, there is encouragement and there is hope too. And there is more. There's so much more. And we don't always know how to read the Bible. I just Googled it out of interest to see what it said. And it said um, that you can actually, you can buy a a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And you can buy a different book called How Not to Read the Bible. But there are loads of different ways of reading it. We can read it as a historical document with a kind of academic lens. We can read it with a commentary or with several commentaries, understanding the theology as we go. We can enter the story. We can imagine being there in it. We can meditate on one part of it, reading it over and over and over and allowing God to guide us in one area. We could read a whole book from the Bible and ask questions about it and let those questions take us on a journey of discovery. Or we could start with questions. What does the Bible say about food? What does the Bible say about relationships or money? And we can journal and and collate all the different things we find out. We could create artwork around scripture. We could write it out lots of times. There's lots of different ways of doing it. And we're not gonna explore all of them now. But as a church community, we are committed to discovering different ways to reading the Bible. In our Sunday gatherings and in our small groups, we unpack and teach the Bible. We ask questions of it. We ask God to reveal things through it. But we also explore different ways of approaching it so we can all be better equipped to engage with scripture at home every day. It isn't solely the job of the church to teach you everything you need to know about the Bible. That's definitely not my job and I can't do it. Each of us has to take responsibility for our own discipleship journey of which the Bible is the foundation. However, I do think it's the job of the church to have scripture at the the core of everything we do. 
It's the job of the church to inspire, to give hope, to equip and to give direction. We're way more like a gym than an academic institution. Being part of G2 means being active in our faith. We try things, we can try different things, we can do things together and we can build our discipleship muscles, our faith muscles. And this is a place where we can share. Like if you read something and it's, um, you know, awakened something in you or you've grappled with something and understood something more, then we would love you to share that, to, to you know, turn up on a Sunday at our gatherings and, and bring what you've been reading and what you've been learning about. We are the church. We don't go to church. We are it. And so each of us has a part to play in this culture. And the question is, are we in? Is the Bible central to our lives? And if it isn't, do we want it to be? Do we want to commit to it, to all of it? Some of you might be feeling guilty. You might be feeling ashamed. You might be thinking, oh, I've not read the Bible in a while. You might be thinking, I don't read it enough. And if if you are, then I'm really sorry because I, I don't want to bring any guilt or shame on people. That's not what this is about. And if that is you, then I pray in Jesus' name that that will fall away because that doesn't help. Not feeling good enough doesn't get us anywhere. Luke talked earlier about, you know, how often we phone our parents when we're away from home and like I probably haven't spoken to my mum for a couple of weeks. But can you imagine if I now decided, well, that's the end of that relationship. It's been two weeks, I haven't spoken to her. Can't phone her now, can I? And I know we're laughing, but that is often what we do with God, isn't it? Is we think, well, I've not spoken to him for a couple of weeks. I've not read the Bible for a couple of weeks. Well, I can't come back. That's ridiculous. We know it's ridiculous. Of course we can come back. There's always a way back to God. There's another chance. But what really strikes me is that we need the spirit in order to do that. We need the spirit to inspire us, um, to, uh, to help us to want to read the Bible. And we need the Holy Spirit to pave the way to remove those things that are meaning we're not reading the Bible, whether that's busyness or whether there's other stuff just getting in between us. Then we really need the Spirit to break through to create that space for us. So we're just going to have a little bit of time letting the, letting the Holy Spirit minister to us now. So why don't you stand?